Thank you, Don. Well, kids, you are dismissed. You can leave for Children's Church at this time. Uh, just a reminder, we have been working on a Super Bowl uh, can drive. Uh, it's due Super Bowl Sunday. We call it Super Bowl because uh, you can have soup or a bowl of something else. So we would encourage you to, uh, to give to that. We're on the 43-yard line, so uh, we're trying to make it to the goal of 250 cans. So please keep that in mind. Let's take our Bibles and we'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Several years ago, there was a movie called Pay It Forward. Perhaps you saw it. It was about a little boy in a social studies class who was given an assignment to do something to affect the world. And so he started this plan. He would do something totally good for someone else without expecting repayment or anything else and encourage that person to pay it forward to someone else. And I don't know if you remember, but in the 2000s, that really kind of gained some traction and took hold, and people started to respond by showing kindness and grace to those who had shown them the same. You know, as I was thinking about the passages of Scripture and the theme of this morning's message, that the grace that we have been given by God, we're to... Pay that forward to one another. I saw a common theme. Thus far, we've seen that God's grace saves us. We've seen that God's grace sustains us. But we're not this little pool that just collects grace and does nothing with it. The idea that we would be recipients of God's grace and hoard it is unscriptural. We should take the grace that God has given us and we should direct it toward those around us. And that's the theme of what we want to look into this morning. Now, I could have chosen many passages of Scripture and this just touches on the idea of the grace that we're to show one another. But I want to begin with 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And as we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, what we find is a teaching concerning the grace of giving. And for some reason, guys, I am uh, drawing blanks when I pull the trigger here. So if you could advance the slide for me, I would appreciate it. Thank you. What we want to do, first of all, is meet the needs of others through God's grace. And what we find is that God has given us uh, a ministry of grace that we need to excel in. So let's talk about the context of this passage. In the first century, there were churches in Jerusalem that were undergoing tremendous persecution. People had lost their families, their jobs, their opportunity to survive because of their faith in Jesus Christ. So you know what happened? Gentile churches in Macedonia and, and what is modern-day Turkey took up collections. And they delivered these collections to the believers in Jerusalem who had been separated because of their different ethnicity, but now were brought together as one in Christ. And they showed grace to them. Now many of the churches that gave to the church in Jerusalem were themselves being persecuted. So this grace of giving 
this collection that they took to pay it forward to the churches in Jerusalem came at great cost. But they wanted to bless these brothers and sisters in Christ. They wanted to grow in the grace of giving. And as we look at this, that's what I want us to understand this morning. Grace isn't something that's just pooled up and hoarded. Grace is something that comes by the overflow of God's grace in our lives into the lives of others. You see, when you've really been touched by God's grace, you become a fountain inside of God's grace that wells up inside you and flows over into the lives of others. What a beautiful picture that is of what we as believers are to be when it comes to grace. Look at the seventh verse. And in verse 7, after Paul was talking about the encouraging things that he had seen in churches around this church at Corinth, he goes on to share with them that they have the opportunity to show grace as well. But then in verse 7, after he commends them for their act of grace in collecting for the saints in Jerusalem, he goes on to say, you must excel in this in particular. Look at verse 7. Just as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I think what Paul wanted to communicate to the church of Macedonia is this. Look, it's not a one-and-done proposition. You don't do a gracious act for somebody and say, okay, I can now check that off my list. I have been gracious on to other things. Grace is to be something that characterizes the life of the believer in our interaction with one another. And while there are many wonderful disciplines, they should all be guided by grace. Notice he says, first of all, in the seventh verse, that they were excelling in everything. And then he starts to catalog some of the things that stood out about the church at Corinth. The first attribute that he mentions is faith. Isn't it great to excel in faith? But I would submit to you that if I am excelling in faith, I will excel in grace. Because it takes faith to demonstrate grace to others. Everything in my human nature says it's all about me. Everything in my life of faith says it's all about God. So yes, I'm to excel in my faith, but that will lead to excelling in grace. The church at Corinth also excelled in speech. When we look at 1 Corinthians, they were a church that excelled in spiritual gifts, and many commentators believe that what he's talking about here when he says you excel in speech, he was talking about some of the spiritual gifts in the first century that demonstrated the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Their speech was a manifestation of the Spirit's work in their midst. And I would submit to you that grace, too, is an indication of the Spirit's work in our midst. Because, listen, grace does not come from the flesh. When I do something in the flesh, you know what I expect? I did this for them. They haven't done anything back. My flesh always expects return, response, 
And when I don't see it, I get miffed. Right? God wants us to be people of grace, and the work of the Spirit in our lives will demonstrate that. We see something else. They overflowed in knowledge. Man, how great is it to overflow in knowledge? Now, Paul had to warn the Corinthians that knowledge puffs up, love builds up. But it's important that we know the Word of God, and that's something that we're to excel in. We're to overflow in these things. That word that's translated excel literally means to overflow. And so they're overflowing in these attributes, and knowledge is a wonderful attribute to overflow in. Listen, we should study the Word of God. We should understand what the Word of God is saying. But a study in the Word of God should lead us to overflowing in grace. Because there's so much grace in the pages of our scripture. Then verse 7 goes on to say, in earnestness. Now, earnestness, we might also translate zeal. It has with it the idea of being enthusiastic about the things of God. Isn't it easy for us to become complacent? To settle in. To not really be eager for the things of God. And we can even excel in our eagerness, but again, if there isn't grace that is there in our eagerness, then it becomes misplaced. Look at the next attributes. In your love for us. Love and grace definitely go hand in hand, don't they? As believers, we want to be loving. And Paul told the Corinthian church in his first letter that the greatest attribute that we can have is love. But I would submit to you that love will move us toward grace. That is the motivation behind giving favor to others unconditionally. That love. God wants us to have that kind of approach to what we do. Now, when we look at this text, it would be easy to look at this text and say, hey, you know, he's talking about money, isn't he? Well, you know, some ways pastors find some way to talk about money, don't they? So here's pastor, you know, working in a text on the grace of giving so that he can talk about money, and that's not the point. Talking about giving of ourselves. One of the things that we tend to hold on to the Titus are our possessions. It's hard for us to hold them with an open hand and recognize that these aren't my possessions, they're God's possessions. I'm a steward, a manager of them. But let me share this with you. The grace of giving is not just talking about our money. It's talking about giving of ourselves. For some, that might be giving our time. Sometimes it's easier for us to write a check than to carve out some time out of our schedule, isn't it? You know, so I don't have to get involved in this person's life. I'll send them money. But I'm not going to go out of my way to really interact with them. That's too much. 
Sometimes it's giving our energy. Man, I'll tell you, there are times where at the end of a work week, you're spent, right? By the time you've done everything and the expectations at work, by the time you've taken care of the needs of your home, there's very little reserve left over. But grace gives even when it's difficult. Maybe it's investing our lives in a relationship like a mentorship relationship. Maybe it's us listening to someone and giving them guidance. You ever notice how we pass through the halls? Hey, how's it going? And if someone starts to explain how it's going, we go, oh, jeepers. That wasn't what I expected or wanted, right? But sometimes the grace of listening is the grace of giving. Sometimes it's just the ministry of presence. The person who's grieving has had a horrible loss, and you don't even have the words to say. You just sit with them and hurt with them and give them the ministry of presence. That's the ministry of giving. And listen, that is what we're to excel in. God wants us to be people who excel in the ministry of giving, grace-giving to one another. Scripture tells us that we are to give this grace in abundance, and it's a testimony to others of where we are as followers of Christ. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, we find Paul write the following, Be wise, in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Do you see the responsibility on all of us to not only show grace to outsiders, but to show grace to one another? Our speech, our conversation, the way we interact, that should even demonstrate grace, and that's something we're going to look into in just a little bit. That is the way that we give grace to others. But then we come to the ninth verse. And what we find there is that grace is modeled for us by Jesus Christ. So when we come to this ninth verse, look at what Paul writes. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. What is the example of grace, the ultimate example of grace that we find in Scripture? It was Jesus setting aside the independent use of his attributes and adding to his deity humanity to come and live among us and die. And look at how that's framed in this text. We were poor. We were utterly and completely hopeless and helpless. But by God's grace, He sent Jesus to set aside the wealth of His attributes as God and set them aside for a time 
That He might become one of us and struggle in our midst. And through that act of poverty, we have the opportunity for spiritual wealth. We have the chance to be blessed and recipients of God's unmerited favor. Remember, that's what grace means. God giving us something that we do not deserve, that we have not earned. God gives us that freely. And Jesus did it for us. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, the following. Each of you should not look only to their own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but He made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Do you see what Scripture is telling us? Jesus gave of Himself. Jesus gave that we might experience deliverance. And so what this is saying to us is this. Jesus saw us in our need and reached out to us in our need. And we should do the same. We shouldn't just look to our own interests and say, it's all about me. That's what the world does. We should look to the interests of others. If we follow the example of Jesus Christ, we will be those who give grace. That's what God wants of us. That's how we're to live. Giving grace to others. Now, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And when we come to Ephesians chapter 4, we see another passage that talks about grace. But here, the measurement for grace is our speech and the way we treat one another. So what we're being called to do in this text is make grace the core of how we treat one another. And we do that by managing our words and giving grace through them. This fourth chapter is amazing. Early in the chapter, we're told the importance as believers of walking worthy of the calling that we've received. We see a description of that in verse 2. So look at Ephesians 4.2 where he says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So when we are walking worthy of the Lord, how do we walk? All of these things describe the attribute of grace. That's how we walk worthy. But then it goes on to say that we are one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is all and through all and in all. And then look at that seventh verse. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So here are ways that we serve the church body through the grace that God gives, through giftedness. And then as the text continues, the Apostle Paul talks about how as believers we should live in holiness when we walk worthy. But it starts with grace. And then what is amazing is as we come to the latter part of this chapter, after he tells them to stop stealing, after he tells them to stop being angry with one another, he comes to the place where he returns to the doctrine of grace when he says in verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk 
come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Now, if you'll notice, we have some scriptures that I think do a better job of translating this than the NIV. First of all, we have the English Standard Version. And look at how it renders this text. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion. Now look at this underlined part. That it may give grace to those who hear. What the NIV translates as that it may benefit others is actually the concept of that it may give grace to those who hear. That's the literal translation. The New English translation You must let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only what is beneficial for building up of one another in need, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, let's leave that slide up, guys, because I want to talk about this for a moment. When it comes to grace, our words really demonstrate the grace of God. The first part where it says, let no corrupting or unwholesome words come out of our mouths. We need to observe some things about this as it pertains to grace in our lives. We need to understand, first of all, that we have a responsibility before God, if we're walking worthy of who we are in Christ, to edit what I say before I say it. We play this game sometimes where we say something and we go, oops. I didn't mean to say that. Yes, you did. You know why? We have a complex mechanism here. Our mouths. Brain sends signals to the mouth. It does not have a mind of its own. It has a deceitful heart that's behind it very often. But it does not have a mind of its own. Our mouths manifest what's truly in our heart. And there are those unguarded moments where they slip out. But it's there. Unwholesome words. Literal translation means rotten. And what it's talking about are things that will hurt the body of Christ. It might be criticism of another believer. It might be slander, saying bad things about other people. It might be gossip. It's going to go into that man or woman's spirit and stay there, that little choice morsel that we just shared. It might be an offensive thing that we say about God or an inaccurate thing that we say about God that harms others in their view of God. It might be that word that discourages another person and brings them to the place to where they're just ready to hang it up We need to be people who guard our words. And the time to assess the appropriateness of what I'm about to say is before I say it. And learning the discipline to hold off and listen. This not only applies to spoken words, but to written words. Emails, Twitter, Facebook, texts. In our culture, we can become very coarse in the way that we communicate with one another. Say very hurtful things that last for a long time 
and come back to bite us or to bite others. We, as those walking worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't let that come out of your mouths. So what is to come out? Look at the next part. But only such as is good for building up. Only that which is good for building others up. In other words, before I speak, I need to consider how is what I'm about to say going to affect the person that hears it? Is what I'm about to say going to diminish the way this person views another believer? If yes, don't say it. Is what I'm about to say going to discourage this person? And not only what I'm about to say, but the way that I say it. You realize in our culture, about 20% of our communication is content. The rest is tone and body language. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. See the difference? One says, I agree. The other one says, when pigs fly. Right? Same words, same content, different meaning. So we need to be careful. Is what I'm about to share going to build up somebody, or is it going to tear them down? Notice the next part as it fits the occasion. Let's, uh, let's go back to the slide. Sorry, guys. The next part of this passage. I need to let the guys changing the slides know my cues a little better. But look at the next part of this passage. It says, as it fits the occasion. It's also translated according to the need of the moment. It also has to do with timing. Have you ever noticed that you can have some wonderful things to say, but if the timing isn't right, it won't be heard? I'm going to let you in on a little secret about me. I'm a terrible pest. I find out something annoys somebody, and it takes every bit of my self-discipline not to go there. Maybe it was because I was the middle kid, and I grew up playing my brother against my sister. Maybe it's just the residual effect of the fallen nature. I don't know. But that's a terrible thing. And listen, when Paula and I were first married, I pestered that poor girl to distraction. I would find something that annoyed her and go, hoo-hoo, and be at it. Not, just letting you single guys know, not a great plan for the first year of your marriage. Okay? Pretty stupid on my part. But I did it. And then, when I saw that she really was upset, I'd feel bad. And I'd go to her and I'd say, Paula, I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have annoyed you to the point of anger. I was wrong. But she was still mad. I mean, I dealt with it. I was over it. So I'm going to go to her and say, I said I'm sorry. You're supposed to forgive me. You know, the Bible says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Even though I brought her to that place, I was now telling her how long she could hold on to it. Right? 
We're to do it according to the need of the moment, not our needs, not our own twisted idea of, of what's right, but according to what God says is right. The last part of that passage goes on to say, and this is so amazing, that it may give grace to those who hear it. Do your words evidence the grace of God? You know, there are some ways that we can test to see whether or not our words are truly giving grace to others. When I share something with someone, am I giving them opportunity to be built up and to grow? Do my words build or break relationships? If I'm in a perpetual stage of hurting others, and breaking relationships with others, I probably have a grace problem. So I need to stop and I need to look at that. Do people walk away from what I've shared with them beaten down and discouraged? Or do they walk away resolved to live differently? And they're encouraged to do so. Grace builds up. When there's a disagreement, Do my words escalate the disagreement or diffuse it? If I give grace, I'm diffusing it, not escalating it. Are my words reconciling or divisive? Those are some of the ways that we tell whether or not our words are giving grace. Now, as we move on to the next point, we find some of the things that can stop grace. Malicious anger will evidence the absence of grace. Look at the 30th verse with me. And this is so important. We are to be those who give grace in the words that we speak, but then look at how things are affected spiritually all around us when that isn't done. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you've been sealed for the day of redemption. Now, I want you to think about the ramifications of this verse. If I am speaking unwholesome words that tear other people down and hurt them in their walk with God, that makes the Holy Spirit sad. That's what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit. Why? We saw earlier in Ephesians that the Spirit of God wants unity within the church body, and when my words drive people apart, that's not accomplishing the work of the Spirit. It's harming it. So I need to be someone who is careful about what he says, not only because I want to walk worthy, but because I do not want to grieve the Holy Spirit by whom I've been sealed. Have you considered this? The things that I say to another believer are impacting a person who is also dwelled by the Holy Spirit, indwelled by the Holy Spirit. So when that brother or sister in Christ who's indwelled by the Holy Spirit is hurt and crushed by the words that I've said, I have affected somebody on the level of their walk with God and it grieves the Spirit of God. 
That's why it's so important for us as believers to be extra careful about what we say and how it's expressed. We want to be people who guard our mouths and understand that we are not to be people that utter hurtful and discouraging things because of the Spirit of God. And let me say this. If we are in a small group or in a church where we don't have a handle on this and there are frayed relationships and there are broken relationships, it's going to affect the work of the Spirit of God in that church body. We have grieved. So as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be careful to make sure that my words do not grieve the Spirit of God. Look at what the text goes on to say. In verse 31, it talks about this anger issue. And to me, one of the greatest grace killers that we can find in our lives or in the life of a church is runaway emotions that are not brought under the direction and guidance of the Spirit of God, but are guided instead by the flesh. Look at this list of words that we're to get rid of. It's interesting in this fourth chapter, we've seen several passages where Paul talks about putting aside, putting off, getting rid of various negative attributes. And here, the attributes all revolve around anger. So let's look at them. First of all, we're told to put off bitterness. Now, bitterness is basically that frame of mind that nurses a grudge. Man, somebody did something to me or one of mine, and I can't let it go. And every time I see that person, it resurrects. I'm angry, and it's smoldering. And it's controlling my thought processes. I stay up at night thinking about this. When somebody brings up the mere mention of this person's name, I go there and I'm bitter. Leviticus tells us, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And let's leave that slide up for a little while. Bitterness takes that grudge and it hangs on. And it colors our thinking. And then there's rage that is also mentioned in this text. Rage is that outburst of anger. I've allowed that bitterness to fester. So I'm going to unload the next time that person does anything that I perceive to be wrong. You know, sometimes the most prominent place that I see this happen is in marriages. There are people who nurse grudges against their spouse and they carry it with them. And then the spouse puts the toilet paper on the roll backwards. And it's an international incident, right? What did you do? How could you do that? That's so insensitive. Right? It's not about the toilet paper. You could roll with that. Right? 
It's honestly about the bitterness that's been building up. So in that unguarded moment, the bitterness demonstrates itself in rage. Brawling. That's a shouting match or coming to blows in a fit of anger. Slander. Literally, this word is blasphemy. You know how I can tell when I'm really mad at somebody? When somebody says something good about the person I'm mad at. I want to set the record straight. Let me tell you who this person really is. And you're going to hear it and you're going to know. Right? Slander. And then finally, malice. And this is the way we can really tell when we're angry. Malice is just very simply ill will. I want bad things to happen to this person. We won't communicate it, but it's often expressed in our feelings. The person receives an award, and we're like, boy, don't deserve that award. Why should anything good happen in their life, right? Something bad happens to them, they go, oh, that's a shame. (laughs) Right? And that's kind of where we are in our anger. And listen, those things will kill grace. When we have anger take control of us, I have heard in my counseling office such ungracious words from husbands to wives and wives to husbands because there's unresolved anger that is there that they're holding on to. I've seen broken relationships in families where one family member won't speak to another family member for decades because of a grudge that is being nursed and held on to. And yes, there are times in church where we shut one another down and we say, I'm angry with somebody so I don't want to see good things happen to them. And it grieves the Spirit of God. So how are we to be? The next point is this. Mercy and forgiveness evidence the presence of grace. Look at the 32nd verse. And here we find this command. Instead of unwholesome words coming out of our mouths, instead of the anger, brawling, slander, malice, all of those things being a part of our nature and our treatment of one another, we're to be kind and compassionate to one another. When we look at grace, grace is giving something to someone that is favor. In other words, it is showing a kindness to somebody else. And this is what God wants us to do with one another. He wants us to be kind toward one another. You know, the sad truth is, for many who have been hurt within a church, or many who have been hurt by the church and left, or many out in the world as they look at the church, kindness is not the first thought that comes to mind about Christians. And we should be the kindest people of all. We should be demonstrating that kindness to one another. 
We're also to be compassionate. I love this word in the original language. You know what it's saying? We're to feel it in our bowels. A particular word that's translated compassion means bowel. We just think if Hallmark had caught a hold of that, put a big colon on their Valentine's card, right? That'd be lovely. But the idea is when you really care about someone, you feel it in your gut. That's the idea. It's that feeling of compassion. Have you ever noticed when you're moved by something, you feel it deep within? And you well up with this feeling of compassion. God wants us to be like that. Considering how another person is feeling and understanding that were I in their same place, experiencing the same thing, how would I want to be treated? How would I want someone to speak to me and, and, and handle this thing that I'm going through that's so difficult? We want to be people who are compassionate. Philippians, or excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. The scripture says this, Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another. Now listen to this. Be compassionate and humble. You want to know why I have difficulty not feeling what another person feels? Because I'm too wrapped up in myself. Humility drives us toward compassion. Compassion and kindness are earmarks of grace. So God wants us to be people of grace. Then it gets real tough. Look at verse 32. We're to be kind and compassionate to one another. And then we have this statement, forgiving each other. Now, Paul could have used different words for forgiveness. But you know what he uses in this text? It's the verbal form of grace. So when he says in this text, forgive one another or forgiving one another, he's saying being grace, showing grace toward one another. That's the idea. Forgiveness requires grace. When someone has wronged me, my flesh says, get even. My flesh says, hang on to this and let that be the lens through which you view that person forevermore. My flesh says, it's not going to be right until I get even. What does grace say? Grace looks at it and says, it's not a question of whether they deserve it or not. It's not a question of how I feel about this right now. Grace says, I forgive you. I extend my favor, my grace to you. That's what it says. Now, can we go back to the First Peter slide for just a moment? This compassionate feeling, this, this humility, this sympathy, I think all of these things are demonstrating the grace that we feel toward one another. 
We need to forgive and look at the standard for it. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. Did I deserve God's forgiveness? Had I sinned against God? The answer to both of those questions, I do not deserve his forgiveness. I am one who was hopeless and helpless that he extended his grace to. Undeserving as I am, God gave me his grace freely. That's what God wants us to do as far as how we view one another. And let me tell you something. As I've thought about this text and as I've run it through my mind, particularly in a situation where I am having difficulty forgiving someone, the words that haunt me are just as in Christ God forgave you. I look at the offense of this brother and I look at the stockpile of my offenses against God And what is this one offense? Jesus even told a parable that communicated that where there was a servant who owed the national debt to his master. Might as well have been. And the master showed him grace and forgave him his debt. And then he goes to another servant who owed him money. And that person owed him a few bucks. And what happened? had him thrown in jail because of the lack of forgiveness. God wants us to be people who forgive. So how do I know whether or not I've forgiven someone? I have 10 ideas. I I started to do a David Letterman thing, you know, 10 ways to know that I haven't forgiven. But this is too important to make light of. So I want us to go through some of these. Number one, how do I know if I haven't forgiven someone? Whenever I think about this person or hear their name, I am immediately thinking of their offense. How do I know when I haven't forgiven? That's the first thing that comes to mind. I see them walk into the room. I see them walk across the street. I hear somebody mention their name. Boom, that offense immediately comes to mind. Number two, I feel a need to disabuse others of a favorable impression of the person. Somebody says, this person's really good, really great. I just love them and appreciate them so much. What do we want to do? Yeah, if you knew the real person, you wouldn't think that way, right? It's immediately where we want to go. Number three, I secretly delight in bad things happening to this person. Oh, I'll put on the facade when somebody tells me about a horrible thing that's happened to them. I go, oh, my goodness. We'll just have to pray for them. But inside, I'm going, yes, right? What about the next one? I secretly dislike good things happening to this person. This person has just been blessed. They've gotten a raise. They're on track spiritually. They're doing wonderful things for God. And inside I'm saying, they don't deserve that for what they did to me. Right? I try to avoid any interaction with this person and dread having to see them. If that's the case, I haven't forgiven Number six, I fantasize about getting even with them or seeing them suffer for their offense. That occupies my thoughts. And listen, the reason I was able to come up with this list so readily, I struggle with all of these things too when I struggle with forgiveness. Look at the next one, verse, or number seven. 
The only prayer I can offer for them is that God will hold them accountable for their offense. I can't pray for blessing. God let their sin find them out, right? Number eight, I feel an intense contempt or disgust for them. Number nine, I have a burning anger when they come to mind that at times gets out of control. And then number 10, I break off relationships with those who are friends with this person. If they're your friend, then you can't be mine. This is just a smattering of some of the things that we go through when there's a lack of forgiveness. But the key to coming to the place of forgiveness is grace. This is one of the most difficult ways that you and I are called upon to give grace to others. But it's what God expects. God wants us to be people of grace. Forgiving others, not because they've asked for it, not because they've deserved it, but because it honors God. It's the grace that we're imitating that is God's grace. And as followers of God, we're to be imitators of God. And to me, this is one of the most difficult disciplines for us as believers to get a hold of. Isn't it easy, once you have forgiven someone, to slip right back in to the lack of forgiveness? Isn't it easy to stockpile offenses and keep a list against those that we're hurt by. Be people who give grace by the way you treat one another in your words and in your forgiveness. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this text. We are challenged by it, Lord. It is so easy for us to nurse a grudge, to hold an offense, to allow it to color our thinking, to damage relationships, to grieve your Holy Spirit. God, my prayer is that we will be people of grace and having experienced the grace that you saved us with, the grace that you sustain us with. God, we know that in those instances where we find it impossible in our own right to forgive or in our own strength, the grace that you sustain us with empowers us to have its overflow into the life of forgiveness. God, let us excel in the grace of giving Let us control our mouths and speak only that which builds up and edifies. God, let us be those who give kindness and compassion and forgiveness to one another. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.